It's the 17th of July, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, narcotic no-nos, SARS-CoV-2 synovitis. Say that fast, SARS-CoV-2 synovitis. Only a rheumatologist could. And most importantly, LTF. Those will follow, but first... A report about risks with inflammatory myositis, idiopathic inflammatory myositis. We used to just call this polymyositis, dermatomyositis. Now it's got a proper name, IIM. Well, an interesting study looked at 600 IIM patients and compared them to 4,000 rheumatoids and 4,000 controls and looked at the overall risk of cardiovascular events showing, like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory myositis, has a significantly higher risk. Uh, hazard ratio 1.45, corrected hazard ratio 1.38, hence about a 40% increased risk of cardiovascular events with myositis. This was roughly equal to that seen in rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, so interestingly, this was mostly MI and not uh, stroke risk. And the other interesting thing here is that while the risk of cardiovascular events persisted over time in RA. The risk in inflammatory myositis only persisted in the first five years. Now, why is that? I'm not really sure. Maybe it's better control of the disease over time, but it's an interesting observation nonetheless. I put up a tweet about dysphagia. I've often been mm, enamored for some strange reason with dysphagia in inflammatory myositis. I think it could be signs of a, a, a serious medical emergency. Such patients uh, who have upper pharyngeal dysphagia, that's where all the skeletal muscle is, as you know, um, are at higher risk for aspiration, higher risk for um, uh, not just swallowing problems, but really uh, it seems to associate with a higher risk overall of uh, more serious disease and should be taken seriously. The only other thing that gives you upper pharyngeal dysphagia would be dry mouth um, and xerostomia, uh, not enough saliva, so to speak. So um, in this particular analysis of the literature, looked at the risk uh, of having dysphagia with myositis was 36%. And it's often presenting feature. The other interesting factor in this particular report was it was more common in patients who have inclusion body myositis. It's also not uncommon in cancer-associated myositis and NXP2-associated inflammatory myopathy. Watch for dysphagia. It's a bad sign. Ghent University did a very interesting analysis, one that sort of uh, surprised me. I tend to think of uh, systemic sclerosis patients as sort of being discrete subgroups. That there's who have those are there are those who have diffuse disease, those who have uh, linear disease or localized forms, uh, etc. Well, in this particular study, they actually did uh, a review and also looked at their own experience at Ghent University and showed that amongst all scleroderma patients, there is a subset of people who will have both diffuse and localized scleroderma occurring in roughly 2.5 to 7.5% of patients. These people will also have rainouts. They'll often have abnormal nail fold capillaroscopy uh, findings that are compatible with scleroderma. Uh, and they will often have uh, uh, diffuse scleroderma-specific autoantibodies. 
So again, you can have both. I've often thought that you get one, you don't get the other. Well, you could in up to 7.4% of patients. There were two simultaneous reports in the last week about the occurrence of coronavirus or COVID-19 synovitis uh, in patients, some patients who had no prior history of arthritis and some who actually did. So in this one report from uh, Annals Rheumatic Disease uh, had two cases from Italy. One had no prior arthritis, one had RA. They both developed worsening or onset of a polyarthritis upon hospitalization for the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, they Both patients had COVID pneumonia uh, and whatnot. Synovial biopsy was done in both cases. One had crystals, but nonetheless, both had um, uh, uh, infiltration with CD3 positive T cells and CD138 positive uh, differentiated plasma cells. Um, that And that was sort of, you would get that with RA, but only one of these people had rheumatoid arthritis. There was another report in Lancet Rheumatology that also described the onset of a symmetric peripheral polyarthritis in a patient previously diagnosed with a spondoarthropathy, and this occurred following a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So the question is, can the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, or uh, bring on inflammatory arthritis by itself? Is it more likely in people who have pre-existing arthritis? Remains to be seen, but these are the first few reports of patients who have synovitis following the COVID-19 infection. JAMA Internal Medicine had an interesting report about the increase in antimalarial prescriptions uh, following the pandemic from February to March of 2020. Hydroxychloroquine prescriptions in- more than doubled or from 300,000 to almost 700,000, that actually was an 86% increase. Uh, and the chloroquine prescriptions had a 160% increase, rising from 2,000 to over 6,000 prescriptions in the same time period. Obviously, there's a lot of craziness about the use of hydroxychloroquine. Although the literature has been sort of uh, consistent in showing either no effect or negative effects with antimalarial use, there's been a few recent reports suggesting, hey, it might actually work, especially if given early. I don't know that it's the, 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 the coffin is closed on hydroxychloroquine and uh, the coronavirus yet. I think we still need more good reports. And you know, all the good reports are still to come because thus far what we've seen are preprints and early reports and press releases. There's an interesting report from the uh, UK uh, Clinical Practice Research Data Link, a large database looking at the association between rheumatoid arthritis and what happens when you use steroids. In this particular study of um, almost 18,000 new onset RA patients who were not on steroids, 42% of them went on to receive steroids. And guess what? A subset of them went on to develop hypertension. Now, maybe that's not... Uh, surprising to you, but I don't think I've ever seen a good reference that tells me that steroid use can cause hypertension in our patients in whom we use them. Hence, another good reason why we should not use them, use them temporarily, or keep them at an absolute low uh, level. The the, uh, risk of developing hypertension was 64 cases per 1,000 patient years, and that glucocorticoid use increased this rate um, by 17%, or a hazard ratio of 1.17. The, the risk of hypertension was, as you would imagine, higher in people taking higher doses 
those at 7.5 milligrams and above. Uh, the catch cohort from Canada had an interesting report this, this uh, week looking at those who are uh, treated with methotrexate monotherapy, either subcutaneously or oral. These were almost 1,500 incident early RA patients enrolled uh, in that cohort over a 10-year period. Subcutaneous methotrexate, the parenteral form, had fewer drug changes, subsequent drug changes, 45% versus 80% on the PO with PO methotrexate, and it had a longer duration of treatment. The only thing that seemed to match this was the use of biologics or triple DMAR therapy also had a longer time period without treatment changes. Again, we don't use a lot of parenteral uh, methotrexate uh, in the United States. Uh, as an adult rheumatologist, I was always surprised to see the, the pediatric population was often more often treated with parenteral uh, methotrexate than the oral form. Uh, and there's a lot of good reasons for it. And I think that there are good reasons here, not only cost reasons. Uh, we certainly know there's not an issue of absorption when you're using parenteral. And, uh, and, this, and there's some evidence certainly to say that it's more efficacious. Maybe the big announcement of the week was the FDA announcement that Gaselkamab, also called Tremphia, was approved for active psoriatic arthritis patients, making it the first IL-23 inhibitor to be approved for psoriatic arthritis. We do have IL-23 agents being studied in psoriasis and uh, and Rizinkizumab uh, 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 um, or uh, Skyrizi is approved for uh, psoriasis, not for the psoriatic arthritis. This was approved for psoriatic arthritis. The approval is based on two very large phase three trials called Discover One, Discover Two. Uh, we heard from uh, Atul Diodar telling us about those uh, those that data set in past meetings. Uh, it is going to be approved at the same dose used for psoriasis, 100 milligrams given at roughly every eight weeks after you have two doses, uh, loading doses at week zero and week four. Um, that's now online and soon will be available. So two reports about the use of narcotics, which irked me a little bit. Um, an EMR analysis of almost 500 patients treated in the emergency, gout patients treated in the emergency room or in the hospital shows that 28% of them received opioids at discharge from the hospital. Most of these were new diagnosed, newly diagnosed gout patients. So maybe there's a, an issue of undiagnosed or uncertainly diagnosed uh, gout patients. The average dose was 38 milligrams of morphine equivalent given for a median of eight days. This seemed to be more common in, also in people who had polyarticular gout, diabetes, and those who had previously received opioids. Again, I don't know that we need narcotics to manage gout. It certainly speaks to the severity of pain uh, that gout can bring on, but there are certainly safer, more effective therapies. Maybe equally bothersome is a report from um, the CDC and MMWR just yesterday showing that in a 2019 survey of pregnant women, 6.6% of women received opioids during pregnancy. And this is, these are women who admitted to receiving opioids during pregnancy. 21% um, said that they were mis misusing it, that they shouldn't have been on it, but they were misusing it. 27% said that they were hoping that they could stop it or reduce it. Um, and maybe more surprisingly, that one third of the, of the patients said that they had not received any counseling from the provider 
about how opioids could adversely affect a fetus and infant. Again, another situation where opioids probably should not be used. The, again, that UK clinical practice registry had an interesting study of mortality risk in lupus. Uh, they studied 4,300 lupus patients uh, and compared them one to six controls. So like compared to 24,000 control patients, that lupus patients overall had an 80% increase in mortality, a hazard ratio of 1.8. Um, this was especially so, um, or the, the mortality risk was largely for infection, uh, uh, cardiovascular reasons, respiratory reasons, and accidents and suicide were also made like the top five reasons. There was a higher risk of mortality with the younger onset of lupus uh, and that there was a chronic use of corticosteroids. Interestingly, the use of hydroxychloroquine lowered the overall mortality risk in lupus. The New England Journal yesterday had an interesting report uh, on cells that can be found in the periphery that may antedate and predict flares in rheumatoid arthritis patients. This particular study talked about prime cells. These are CD45 negative, CD31 negative, pre-inflammatory stem cells. They call them prime cells that are found in the blood. So they did some genomic analyses, some cell uh, flow cytometry analyses on one index patient, and they actually did like 300 or 400 different um, uh, bloodlettings and data collections, uh, and they and they did this over a four-year period, during which there were uh, eight flares in that patient. Uh, they they showed the same results in another three patients where they had a few hundred uh, again samples. Basically, they showed that these prime cells would arise after um, signs of B cell activation, uh, that they would go up and then with the flare, they would go down. Um, an interesting finding suggesting that maybe this is uh, a new way to identify patients who are in a flare. Somewhat impractical, I would say, except if you're gonna do a clinical trial, you don't wanna enroll people who have an impending flare. And I think most of what we do with regard to flares of rheumatoid arthritis are certainly archaic. We don't understand flares. We yet, and there are multiple, multiple reasons for flares. Yet, what do we do for flares? They all get steroids, intraarticular, oral, you know, any way you can, can imagine. You know, I think that not all flares should be treated the same. Maybe this takes us one step closer to identifying those who may respond to one type of therapy or another. Lastly, the New England Journal had an interesting letter to the editor, which was a comment by the original authors about their policies on mask wearing in, uh, to prevent the COVID-19 infection. Um, and they made the strong point that number one, everyone should wear masks. Uh, and the idea here is of course that um, you may not wanna wear a mask, you may not think you need to wear a mask. The problem is, those who are infected often do not know. The vast majority of us who will get infected do not know we are infected and we are asymptomatic. I heard one quote a few weeks ago said there are two types of people in this world, those who've, got, who've had the, the uh, coronavirus and those who are gonna get it. Uh, with that in mind and trying to limit the um, damage of this pandemic, mask wearing is essential. They also mention an important point that the risk of transmission is directly correlated with the duration and the intensity of close contact. So this is really important in close quarters, less important when you're outside. So 
you know, if you're walking and running and riding a bike, you don't need to wear a mask because you're, you're doing a drive-by and you're outdoors. However, if you're going to stop and talk to those three people and get close to them, you probably do need to be wearing a mask. Bottom line is LTF. Listen to Fauci. I'm not sure why Fauci has fallen under a critique. He's the only smart person at the table on this issue. Um, this is too serious to be listening to, listening to amateurs and people who are trying to get voted in and trying to stay in power. I mean, this is a major medical problem that is not going to go away. It's affected over 1% of our population is going to kill over 200,000, maybe 300,000 Americans when all is said and done. Uh, we need serious measures from serious, smart people to know how to manage this. LTF, listen to Fauci. Use it, requote me on this. It's incredibly important. Go, Tony.